Good morning, everybody out there in wonderful outdoors land. And I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of the We Love Outdoors podcast with Rich Davenport. My name is Rich Davenport, and I'm here to uh, give you everything that you need to know about conservation, wildlife, fisheries, energy policy, rooted in sound conservation principles, and science. And again, I'd like to welcome you here to, uh, once again, uh, We Love Outdoors. Uh, looking at a lot of different things in New York State here. We're out of Buffalo, New York. Uh, my name is Rich Davenport again, and you know, I'm a member of the Erie County Federation of Sportsman's Clubs, uh, Secretary of the Western New York Environmental Federation, and uh, Alternate Director for the New York State Conservation Council. I've been involved in many things over the years, about 17, 18 years of being a sportsman's advocate. And I wanted to share this information with you all because sometimes we just don't get the right information in the press, and I'm sure everybody will agree with that one. Um, so I just want to jump right in right now, and you know, this is May, April 4th, or April 5th, I should say, Dingus Day. Happy Dingus Day to all you Polish people out there. And those who aren't Polish, we're all Polish for a day on Dingus Day. Um, coming out of the COVID, you know, it's uh, people are still trying to celebrate and trying to get back to normal. Uh, but fortunately, we do have a lot of great fishing in this area, and that can keep us uh, kind of sane. Um, last year, it was a you know obviously a different world, and now we're coming out of uh, this pandemic or epidemic in this area, and people are just wanting to get out and find things to do, enjoy themselves, and uh, you know kind of relieve that stress of being locked up, cooped up, not having a normal routine. And this area is probably one of the best areas in the country for fishing that you could possibly imagine. I mean, we have so many inland waters, uh, different streams that offer a wide variety of different experiences from that, uh, you know, that, that stocked experience in a major river, uh, such as the Genesee River, uh, to the wild experiences that are afforded by places like the Wiscoy Creek. Uh, it's just fantastic. And of course, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, you can't get any better than having two great lakes in our backyard, with Lake Erie being the top fishery in the United States, uh, hands down. And uh, Lake Ontario isn't a slouch either. It's rated number three of all the great lakes. So we really have a good time uh, finding things to do. Uh, the fishery certainly has improved over the decades since the Great Lakes were polluted all to you-know-what by by the people of this area and uh, complicit with our government. Uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers would certainly dig out all that spoilage and dump them out into the open waters of the Great Lakes before any protections were there. Uh, but, you know, 50 years later, we have a, a, just an absolute thriving ecosystem, and it's really something to behold. Uh, today and now are the good old days for those of us who enjoy fishing and uh, even hunting, too. Uh, but since this is April, we've got trout going on in New York State. Uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, was opening day of the New York State inland trout season. And a lot of changes have come with this year's 2021 opener, including a brand new inland trout management plan released by the New York State DEC for public comment last uh, winter. And it's really a, a, a kind of a departure from what we've normally seen in terms of uh, managing plans for trout. Uh, New York State, although blessed with a lot of cold waters, a lot of streams, a lot of uh, oxygenation, uh, we do also have uh, pollution and uh, acid rain and a lot of different things that over the decades of um, cavalier usage of our wildlife and our natural resources that you know kind of put a damper on uh, some of the, the waterways and their ability to hold fish. Uh, their ability to uh, maintain trout populations, breeding populations year-round. And, you know, we've had a fish hatchery program for a long time in New York State. I believe it was born here in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, state-managed fish hatcheries. And predominantly the, the trout fishing inland, I should say. I, you know, I want to separate that because we do have Great Lakes, and they're different than the inland streams. Uh, so we're specifically talking about those inland streams, and there's a wide variety of different streams that we have, uh, small rivulets, brooks, uh, larger rivers, larger tributaries, and they all provide different types of habitat, different types of bottom structure, uh, cubic feet per minute flow, uh, the ability to, to 
maintain a cool temperature through the summer and you know with with shade and with uh, natural cold springs that feed it and then there, there are other waters ponds and, and and creeks and such that do get a lot of angling attention but they don't necessarily have those characteristics that allow the fish to winter over uh, it's a put and take fishery in some of these and you know historically trout fishing inland in new york has been predominantly driven by put and take we have hatcheries we get the trucks out there uh, we get yearling fish that are dropped in by the thousands in many different streams across the nine regions of New York State. And we also have other streams that certainly have uh, a larger potential for natural reproduction, wild trout. There aren't a lot of them in here, but you know the premier trout stream in western New York, Region 9, is in Wyoming County. It's called the Wiscoy Creek. That is a, a wild stream. It is you know, beautiful browns, beautiful brook trout. And you don't see a whole lot of stocking. There were some efforts there a little while ago uh, in the catch and release artificial only stretches in the upper reach above the dam in Pike, New York, about a mile and a half uh, running down Route 39. Um, you know, just to give a, a year-round opportunity for artificial only catch and release fishermen. But this stream being 22 miles long, not the entirety of this uh, stream, the entire reaches of it have been stocked. In fact, it was just that one, one and a half mile uh, stretch. And it's a predominantly wild stream. And then we have streams of all different qualities in between. So long as they're Class C that can support trout, they're going to be managed in a different way with this New Inland Trout Management Plan that breaks down waters into a few different categories. Uh, rather than trying to manage, uh, you know, putting in fish and, and trying to manage for stocked fish and, and spreading out that opportunity, uh, New York State has now looked at the waterways. And, you know, it's a very good way to look at it for trout. You've got two different type of trout stocked trout waters. Uh, one is just the straight up stocked and the other is the stocked extended where the DEC is looking to get extended opportunities uh, from those stocked fish well into the summer, maybe even into the fall uh, on those waters that are suitable for that, meaning they don't get real hot, they're not real turbid. Uh, there's good opportunities for uh, fish to seek uh, harbor under shaded areas, deeper pools, uh, well oxygenated to keep those oxygen levels up. But again, they're, they're a stocked trout uh, scenario. Then you have uh, three other categorizations of these trout quality streams. Uh, they're wild, wild is, uh, premier is the top one, and wild quality is the in, in between. So you have wild, wild quality, and wild premier. And these streams are going to be managed uh, based on what their quality is and opportunity. Uh, the stock streams and the wild streams are going to be managed just like uh, predominantly we have managed all the inland trout waters with exceptions. Uh, that's five fish a day for each angler and two fish and only two fish, up to two fish, can exceed 12 inches. That's to allow those two and a half year old fish to uh, be extended into the season. You know, they put those larger fish in for a better experience. Uh, rather than catching an 8 or 10 inch fish, you know, you're getting a 12 to 14 inch fish. Uh, but they want those fish because they are expensive. They take longer to grow. Obviously, it's another year in the hatchery. Uh, those fish want to be uh, shared by a lot of different people and at least a lot of, uh, a lot of time. So, you know, they put in that, that restriction several years ago that of your five fish of the trout, only two can be over 12. That's to prolong the two-and-a-half-year-olds, and that's the same limit that's on the wild streams and the stocked streams. Then you got your stocked extended and your wild quality. These two streams are, uh, you know, certainly a little bit different, uh, but they're going to have the same limit where it's three fish a day, but only one can be over 12. Uh this is going to apply to, you know, some of the waters like the uh, Cataraugus and Clear Creek and things such as that, where, where they want to get more stocking done, and it's a larger opportunity. There's different sizes of the streams that that allow for uh, these classifications. You know, a stock stream may be narrow. The stock extended is going to be larger. Uh, same thing for the wild uh, quality, where you're not going to see stocking in a wild quality stream but you are going to see an opportunity to get wild fish. And there's going to be more biomass in that than, say, a straight wild stream, which is a much smaller uh, body of water. You may not encounter a lot of fish, or you may encounter quite a few, but they're not going to be that big. Uh, the wild quality is a little bit better fish, uh, better stream, uh, looking for that quality. And they're going to reduce the, uh, you know, those particular uh, limits 
per day accordingly to make sure that those opportunities last. And the last one, of course, is the Wild Premier. There is no stocked counterpart to that. The Wild Premier is a wild uh, fishery. It's a good enough size to where you've got excellent biomass. Uh, there is no stocking that is done. And your limit is going to be one fish of any size. Uh, you know, back to the biggest change when you look at the Wiscoy Creek. Wiscoy and Clear Creek, uh, Wyoming counties, they were two premier uh, waters that had a three fish a day limit but minimum of 10 inches. They didn't have a 12 inch uh, you know, restriction on the number you could keep on that. But uh, you know, looking at this uh, trout plan, you know, it's got something in it for everybody and it really does change some things. You have to actually read it. It was just released. Um, the uh, fishing regulations that are updated every two years, they come out in April. Actually the printing was delayed. Uh, so the DEC could go through and finalize all the comments and make sure that they had dotted their I's and crossed their T's. And, uh, you know, so if you're looking for a, a fishing guide, you know, that's going to be coming out towards the end of this month. Uh, but you can certainly get the stuff online at the New York State DEC website. Um, you know, and that's not going to be a big issue to to be able to do that. Uh, you know, there are other things that, that drove this. And, you know, the cynic in me tells me that, you know, the... the the hatcheries are, are going to be one that uh, uh, that drives this uh, predominantly because of the costs. You know, DEC has budget problems, go figure. Although COVID certainly has increased the license sales in New York State, uh, you're still looking at quite a number of uh, uh, shortcomings within the budget. Uh, ECOs are on a restriction of no overtime. All, all personnel are on no overtime. Uh, limiting mileage, etc. cetera. Uh, trying to keep that, that uh, cost down as best as they can. Uh, still, you know, that, that cynic in me is saying that, you know, this was done to reduce the stocking efforts. And to a degree, they have. Uh, but it's a, another approach, it's a different approach, and, you know, organizations like Trout Unlimited, uh, Erie County Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs, we looked at this as a whole and said, you know, this is probably one of the most effective inland trout management plans that there is in the county, or in the country, rather. So uh, we like to have that, we like to see that. And, uh, you know, just be aware, uh, read the regs, understand where your stream that you're going to be fishing falls into so you understand what your limits are. <clears throat> always, you know, again, try to practice, uh, you know, good conservation, you know, carry it in, carry it out, don't litter it up. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, spent line and empty bait containers. And, you know, we just don't want that. Uh, that's something that can, you know, cause problems with the ecosystem, uh, with the habitat and, and the inhabitants of those ecosystems, as well as our access to some of these places, you know, public fishing rights and, and easements to get access along creek banks and such. They're not the easiest thing in the world. A lot of these uh, places that we have, you know, do have some private property and they cut through private property and then the DEC has to work to get public fishing rights from the property owner. And, you know, the last thing the property owner wants to see is uh, a junkyard in their backyard of all sorts of debris and, and uh, you know, litter and such. So just remember, carry it in, carry it out. Uh, you know, to get more information on that trial plan, you can go to www.dec.ny.gov and look under that freshwater fishing under recreation, and you can find that trout management plan. Just land on their website, do a search, you know, Inland Trout Management Plan 2021, and uh, you'll find that. Be familiar with it. It's a very good document. Uh, I think our, our uh, fisheries people did a wonderful job on that. And again, this is the first year that we've had, uh, you know, these changes in place. So, you know, familiarize yourself with those waters and with the designations. Uh, there is a document on that page, uh, on that uh, website, that you can download that and you can see exactly what classification is by region. Uh, certainly doesn't cover all the waterways in New York State. We don't have all the waterways cataloged in New York State. Some are seasonal streams, some are very small that don't look like much, but may harbor eastern wild brook trout populations. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is that the DEC has really done a good job to try to catalog as many different places as possible. Uh, you look at the trout rating, look at the quality rating, and uh, act accordingly. So good job to the DEC. Thank you very much. Uh, speaking of fishing, you know, the fishing right now is, is very good. I'm going to turn my attention to the Great Lakes streams because, you know, being in Buffalo, New York, 
uh, just outside it in Tonawanda, we have Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, and some of those uh, steelhead streams are just absolutely tremendous. They're world class. Uh, to give everybody an understanding, uh, right now it may it may be through May that we have uh, some fish presence in these streams. Although they're running a little bit low and the water temperatures did spike a bit in March, temperatures have dropped now in April. We've gotten some water uh, in the form of some, you know, a couple inches of rain not too long ago. And I'll tell you, all the, the uh, Lake Erie streams right now are loaded with steelhead. They're not very big, uh, you know, maybe up to five, six pounds, but, you know, that's a heck of a good sized fish to catch. And the Lake Erie streams, you know, provide that, that experience that you may be looking for that you'd find out, like, say, in Montana or the Dakotas, uh, Colorado, where you have uh, freestone streams, limestone bottom, and it, it gives you that, that experience of, of, of wading a creek, working the riffles, working the pools, uh, second to none, it really is. Uh, and all those streams along Lake, uh, Lake Erie really have a lot of fish in them right now, you know, from the mouth all the way up to the first impassable barrier. 18-mile uh, creek, the last time I was there, it was loaded. Uh, Cataraugus Creek is, is absolutely loaded. And, uh, you know, those anglers familiar with Scobie Dam, uh, this year could be the last year to see it in its current configuration, uh, provided money and funding being there, which is always a, a, a crapshoot in this day and age of wasteful spending at the uh, government level. Uh, we should all see, uh, you know, probably this being the last year for that dam being there in its current form. It is in structural failure. Uh, Erie County has to do something with that. We're looking at, uh, you know, using some Great Lakes restoration funds, take that uh, dam down about eight, nine feet, and uh, install fish ladders so the running steelhead can get upstream to the upper reaches of the Cataraugus, which has the better spawning habitat. And when we do that and we restore that flow, that dam is obviously an artificial uh, impediment to those running fish. We get to use some Great Lakes restoration funds, and it doesn't come out of the Erie County people's pockets in general or in total. It comes out of some of Erie County, but we have a, a national Great Lakes restoration program that is uh, you know, funded in part by tackle sales and license sales and so on, and it's a larger pool of funding, larger number of people, so it's a, a smaller cost per person. Uh, and it will deliver some, some really interesting uh, uh, dynamics to the the trout fisheries in Lake Erie. Uh, if those fish can get up and spawn and we see some good spawning reproduction, uh, you know, that could be a, another fantastic uh, source of wild reproducing fish for the Great Lakes. And we could certainly look forward to that. Uh, and now we're going to just take a little bit of a break here while we, uh, while we, uh, you know, examine uh, the next things coming up. And uh, again, uh, enjoy the, uh, enjoy the music. Welcome back to We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. I'm Rich Davenport. Uh, talking about Lake Erie, we're gonna we're gonna dive in deep here. Uh, you know the the uh, history of Lake Erie is not well known uh, to those who are younger than age 50. And just to give you a quick recap, uh, back in 1970, 51 years ago this year, Lake Erie was declared a dead lake. Uh, this was due to industrial pollution and uh, phosphorus runoff from agriculture, uh, inadequate sewer systems from municipalities and such. And, you know, across that period of time, we saw from the 1920s to 1970 just a complete degradation of this wonderful chain of lakes that, you know, it's we've got a... 21% of the world's surface fresh water, potable fresh water, is found in the Great Lakes Basin. Uh, Lake Erie, although being the smallest of the Great Lakes in terms of overall volume, it is the most fertile because it is so shallow. It's 210 uh, 
depth at its deepest point. Uh, it's 227 miles long, 56 miles wide, and you know this this body of water is very very fertile. Uh, in fact, pre uh, Lake Erie being dead, uh, you know, r rolling through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, Lake Erie would often account for over half of the total commercial catch of of uh, fish. And that would be, you know, made up of, uh, you know, blue pike and yellow pike and yellow perch. Uh, you know, these these fish are just absolutely, totally desirable. And Lake Erie has more of them uh, because of that shallow nature, because of the the high index of uh, fertility. There's a lot of plankton. There's a, just a fantastic fishery. But over the course of time, you know, man and their wisdom and uh, infinite stupidity, I should say, uh, decided that it was a good thing to treat our Great Lakes, again, 21% of the world's surface fresh water resources, as industrial toilets and sewers. So we had, uh, you know, industries, especially, you know, along Lake Erie, 56 different municipalities. It's the, the most heavily developed of the Great Lakes for industry. Uh, we saw the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, doing dredging and dumping of uh, industrial spoilage that would uh, be dumped by these companies, such as Bethlehem Steel and, and, and many others. I don't mean to single them out, but, uh, you know, that's the most uh, infamous one that we can point to in the Buffalo River, which at one time was the most polluted waterway in the United States. Uh, you know, they would dump their, their industrial waste, their sludge, their, their uh, slag and their coal, coke and so on, and, and, and just fill up that that Buffalo Creek to the point where freighters couldn't get in to to uh, dock up with their operations uh, to load up their freighters and take them westward or eastward. So the Army Corps of Engineers would periodically come in there and dredge up this stuff, put it on barges, take it out in the open waters of the lake and dump it there. Uh, you know, we, we had the, the cavalier attitude that, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution. And since the Great Lakes chain is about eight quadrillion gallons worth of uh, water aggregately, that there would be no way that with the flow coming from Lake Superior eastward through, uh, you know, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, through Sault Ste. Marie, uh, down through Lake St. Clair, into uh, Lake Erie, and then down the Niagara River, down the falls into Lake Ontario to head out to the St. Lawrence Seaway and eventually make its way to the Atlantic Ocean. There would be no way that we could possibly, you know, throughout any kind of course of time or history pollute the heck out of this lake because it'll just dilute up. And we learned that the hard way that was wrong. And again, in 1970, the lake was declared dead. There were so many different pollutants from PCBs and dioxins, uh, different things like the uh, polyfluoroalkylene substances or PFAS that are just newly emerging. Uh, these things were, were collected up in mass and just dumped in. And, you know, looking back on it, you know, it caused a lot of health problems in our area. There weren't any fish left in the lake by 1970, just a bunch of, uh, you know, just a bunch of insects, especially the caddisfly or the sandfly, unchecked. Uh, creating wonderful um, experiences along the waterfront uh, throughout any given evening in the summertime. I mean, people could not even dine or walk down along the uh, waterfront. Until Stanley Spesiak, uh, the president of the Erie County Conservation Alliance, the predecessor to the Erie County Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs, uh, managed to get President Johnson to take a visit in 1966 and uh, take a look firsthand at the Buffalo River and at the sludge and uh, that was the catalyst to get the Great Lakes Protection Act implemented in 1968, which stopped all the dumping and the dredging, uh, eliminated uh, discharge from mates heads, uh, restrooms on boats for those people that aren't uh, familiar with that, uh, discharging right into the direct open waters. They you know, had to put it into a, a holding tank, uh, you know, a little porta potty type deal, which you had to take off the boat and empty. Uh, there was no more pulling that water in and dumping it out directly. That happened in 1968. In 1972, everything was finalized with the Clean Water Act, uh, signed by President Richard Nixon, and that really allowed us to, to protect this waterway. And as Lake Erie's flush rate being 2.6 years, every 2.6 years, the water in that, that lake is completely refreshed, unlike Lake uh, Superior, which takes over 200 years because of its depth. Uh, it allowed some of those toxins to flush out, and it was the first one to start really recovering. Uh, 1974, we started seeing some some stocking of some salmon, and and uh, you know, we saw boats starting to get out there. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, you know the iron filings that were uh, turning the waters that orange color, the the tar and the sludge that would stick onto the bottom of vessels. That started to abate, and you started seeing boats return 
and you started seeing uh, you know fishermen coming back as as we started working on the restoration of that lake and uh, even people coming back to the shores to uh, you know have a have a dinner and, and enjoy the sunset along the waterfront uh, things that we hadn't seen in a long time and maybe we take for granted today 51 years later because we just don't know any better but those who were around understand how bad it was uh, you know pockets of, of illness because of the toxins in the water and it wasn't just one toxin it was really a cocktail of toxins that combined to interact and you know we medical science just couldn't put their finger on one or two substances it was really the cumulative effect and the combination of all of these different things that we allowed to be dumped into our waters of life uh, really caused problems and you know western new york has been you know, known for pockets of cancers and lupus and, and multiple sclerosis and, and other blood and immune disorders that you don't see in many places around the country. But, you know, we did have some hot spots in terms of uh, Manhattan Project dump sites, uh, the, you know, chemical companies dumping in Love Canal. Uh, some of these things are, are, are attributed to being a, a part of that cause. But those are small areas. It's not leaching out through, throughout the entire community. And those hot spots were definitely a lot larger than those particular landfills were. And really when we found the polyfluoral alkaline substances and we started understanding these PFAS uh, uh, categories, uh, that really was the, the smoking gun. Uh, we have a lot of that down in the bottom of the lake. Uh, they're relatively new. New York State is, is uh, regulating a couple of the uh, uh, substances found in that family. And, you know, safe levels are... 10 parts per trillion or less you know parts per trillion that's that's a real small amount uh they're highly carcinogenic uh exposure happens through skin contact or through contaminated drinking water and we've got a lot of that still on the bottom of that lake but because that lake is so shallow you know unlike the rest of the lakes that have you know depths up to a thousand feet you know 210 is pretty shallow and it allows all the sediment that is uh, carried by storms uh, out the uh, the tributaries, uh, driven by wind and such. It, it allowed that sediment to be carried across the entirety and settled out over the bottom over time. And it's resulted in what we call a sand cap that has cut off all those contaminants that are still out there. They've distributed throughout the entire ecosystem. And they didn't just, you know, the Army Corps didn't just dump it and it stayed there. It spread out by the currents from Cleveland all the way to Buffalo. Uh, and into the Niagara River, too, as we know that current flows from Lake Erie through the Niagara River downstream to Lake Ontario. Uh, just really a, a mess. And trying to document where all those contaminants are after it was spread out by nature itself is kind of one of those fool's errands. Uh, it was tried by the Army Corps uh, decades ago uh, when, you know, ships manifests were, were there and, and readily accessible. You still had people who, you know, the captains and such, the skippers of those barges were still alive. They could tell you what was going on. We don't have that today. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we know that the entire lake bottom is... Uh, got a lot of toxins on it, perhaps not every square inch of it, but in a lot of different areas. And it's difficult to uh, even imagine and fathom trying to clean that up. It's better just leaving it undisturbed under that sediment. And, uh, you know, today, again, you know, the uh, Department of Health has been conducting uh, tissue sampling of the fish, and they have found that most of the fish in Lake Erie now are safe to consume, which is amazing. Uh, you know, you couldn't eat anything of any size, any number. It didn't matter. Uh, it was definitely a risk to your health. And, you know, again, there was a big commercial fishery out of Lake Erie. That has returned. Uh, the fish are healthy. You know, Canada has a big commercial fishery for the uh, persids, which are the perch and walleye. Uh, Pennsylvania has a perch fishery, Ohio's got a perch and walleye fishery, uh, the commercial side, and, uh, you know, even though New York doesn't have a commercial fishery, you know, we do benefit from the, uh, the way that is managed across the lake through the total allowable catch, and it's shared across the, the states in Canada that, you know, Boundary, Lake Erie, uh, it's a fantastic thing. Uh, but we certainly don't want to see, uh, our waters that 11 million people across the United States and Canada, just Lake Erie alone, depend on for our drinking and bathing water. Uh, 2019 showed such incredible health that the Upper Niagara and Lower Niagara rivers, uh, the U.S. side of uh, those rivers, were designated a Ramsar uh, 
international wetland of importance. Uh, very coveted uh, rating for this area. Doesn't do anything for additional protections, but it does say, hey, you know, there's like 2,000 places in the world, and there's 21 places in the United States that carries this international wetland of importance, the Ramsar designation, which was named after Ramsar Iran, for a, a, a meeting that was held with migratory bird people across the world back in the early 1970s, and this designation to uh, highlight and, and raise awareness of these important places for a whole wide variety of different reasons, biodiversity being one of those, uh, which is why we've received our Ramsar designation is for the incredible biodiversity that, again, 50 years ago we had a dead lake. We didn't have a whole lot of uh, wildlife around. You were lucky to see a few sparrows. We didn't have a whole lot of seagulls. There wasn't a lot of life for these animals to feed on. Uh, without food, you're not going to have any wildlife. Uh, bald eagles today, you know, we didn't have too many pairs of, uh, you know, nesting eagles uh, at all. In fact, you know, you had limited numbers of, of eagles in the eastern part of the state, in the Hudson Valley, you know, maybe four or five different breeding pairs, you know, a dozen birds. Uh, today, we've got uh, incredible bald eagle populations up and down the, the uh, shoreline of Lake Erie. Uh, probably 30 or 40 nesting pairs just in that area alone. We have over 300 nesting pairs that have been documented in New York State that we know of. That's 600 birds from, you know, a dozen birds back in the 1970s. So, you know, we, the things that we have done as anglers, I, I got to take credit for it as an angler because Stanley Spesiak, who was the man who's credited with saving the Great Lakes, was a fisherman. And he it was his, you know, life's work to save these Great Lakes, which he did so successfully. Uh, but all of that work and, and, and the stewardship that is uh, very important uh, has culminated into these wonderful designations. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that the kids not yet born have these things that we didn't have when I was a kid. And the greatest legacy would be to pass that along. Definitely. No, no doubt about it. I think everybody wants to have that, right? Uh, so we've got... Uh, you know, different things going on in the Great Lakes. There's always problems. We've got blue-green algae that has uh, uh, been a problem in Lake Erie for the last couple of years, uh, going back probably 10, 15 years. We've got microplastics issues. We've got wastewater runoff, you know, biological contamination that's happening in there. We did get the uh, industrial chemical pollution under control, but there's always threats. Invasive species. Uh, recently reading about the quagga mussel. And, uh, you know, this thing is, is invasive just like the zebra mussel. It can live deeper waters. That's kind of the quagga mussel is now displacing the zebra mussel. And uh, we've just learned that these things may be phosphorus regulators. So we've got a lot of phosphorus over the last 15 years that has uh, found its way into the western uh, basin of Lake Erie through the Ohio River Valley, the Cuyahoga River, one of the burning rivers back in the day like the Buffalo River was. Uh, but this is from increased corn production. Uh, phosphorus has been banned in detergents and in most uh, lawn applications and such, but one of the exceptions in the Clean Water Act is corn. Corn needs phosphorus. It's a, a wicked nutrient that it needs. It's, uh, it's definitely a necessity. And uh, as we've seen corn production increase in the heartland for ethanol, not for food, uh, we've seen uh, non-point uh, sources of pollution now growing. And it looks like we've gotten a hold of that, but we're still seeing phosphorus levels um, that we should see dropping, and we're now starting to see that wildlife and uh, and uh, natural resource people are starting to believe that the quagga mussel is a phosphorus regulator, meaning that it absorbs phosphorus, it holds it in its in its uh, in its uh, in itself, and it will discharge it into the ecosystem uh, when it gets too much into it, or you know maybe it needs to suck in some more phosphorus, so it'll suck in phosphorus. We don't know exactly what the relationship is yet, but it does appear to be a regulator holding phosphorus and discharging it into the uh, ecosystem, maybe upon their death. Uh, you know, as we get new colonies of life coming up on top of it, the old ones die. You know, that's a source of botulism in, in uh, you know, the freshwater mollusks when they have a massive die-off. Uh, you get botulism poisoning, you see dead birds, you see dead fish. Uh, this phosphorus in the quagga mussels could be something that, uh, you know, is cyclical. It's released when these uh, organisms pass and uh, it gets back into the ecosystem. It funnels and feeds the blue-green algae and the harmful uh, algae blooms start happening in the western basin. Uh, last year we didn't see too much of it, though, which is a very good thing. So, you know, the health of the lake is always uh, in balance, and, you know, the last thing we need is a bunch of people uh, in government 
you know, starting their Cavalier work again. And that's what we have right now in Ohio. Pennsylvania is examining it in New York. Uh, the fool on the hill, Governor Andrew Cuomo, hopefully he won't be around too much longer. Uh, recently in 2019, New York passed their Green New Deal. And it calls for 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind power that's installed capacity that's not actually, you know, what's generated uh, by 2030. So that's not too far away. And although NYSERDA recently in a uh, webinar that they had to kick off the feasibility study for the Great Lakes offshore wind that they're, you know, looking at doing, uh, they made it a point to tell us that that is not part of the offshore wind mandate in the Climate Leadership and Protection Act or the Climate Change Law or whatever, you know, cute little name they want to call this arbitrary and capricious personal goal that's connected to nothing except uh, an agenda. Uh, that's right, there's no science behind it. It's just pick a number, any number, and uh, go ahead and put it out there. And now, since it's law, they got to obey the law. So um, that puts the Great Lakes right on... Uh, the crosshairs once again. New York Power Authority tried to do this back in 2011. They abandoned it after uh, a whole lot of opposition came up, and then they finally just said, you know what, the costs are really too high. Uh, marinized wind factories are at least five times more expensive than a terrestrial or land-based wind factory would be, and um, they don't deliver anything more. They don't do anything more. You know, wind is still inherently unreliable, unpredictable, and uh, that's true across waters as it is, uh, you know, 80 meters up over land. Uh, they want to talk a lot about potential and potential and potential, but the good news is for Lake Erie is that that offshore wind is not part of the legal mandate, unfortunately, that is off the oceans. And there are a lot of negative impacts that many people are finding from these uh, wind factories. Uh, chief among them is infrasound or low frequency noise that's generated by them. It's a weapon of war according to the Department of Defense. And the larger the turbines are, the noisier they are. Now low frequency noise, we don't hear, but we feel it. Uh, the closer you are to that source, it does things that to the body that is really bad, including increasing the, pr the pressure in your cells. Uh, if you're on it to a point where you're so close, it could cause a rupture of your cell walls, uh, which can cause soft tissue damage and internal bleeding. Uh, strokes have been attributed to, uh, you know, low frequency noise, uh, infrasound exposure. Uh, just really bad, you know, the, the headaches that people get, the migraines, the distress, the anxiety, sleep deprivation, uh, the wind turbine syndrome, as they're calling it. And, you know, the sound travels faster, farther, and stronger underwater than it does through air. Uh, molecules are closer together, as we all know, and the vibration of that sound particle, you know, it, it passes through a lot faster when you have those, those particles close together, and it travels a lot farther. It doesn't lose its amplitude as quick as it does through air, as, you know, when you've got those molecules that are spread far apart, and, you know, that it's, it's a different approach here. It's a different thing, but those physics contribute to a mighty problem. Uh, back in the 1990s, our uh, United States Navy began testing out low-frequency active sonar to detect the modern silent-running submarines, the stealth submarines. And, you know, we saw marine mammals, when they were hit by this low-frequency noise, uh, right whales and pilot whales, they would get disoriented. They would lose their ability to navigate. They'd wind up on a beach somewhere. Uh, beaked whales, they would stop feeding and diving and singing, and they would just hold totally motionless. Uh, some folks uh, believe that the particular noise to the beaked whale sounded like their number one predator, the killer whale or the orca, so they would try to, you know, remain undetectable. Uh, the low-frequency noise, those impacts, you know, again, seem to be, when it comes to fishes, according to a study that was done in 2006 on an offshore wind farm in uh, off the coast of Germany, um, this operational noise, it seems to have a larger impact on those creatures that have a fully gas-filled swim bladder than others that have maybe a partially gas-filled swim bladder or no swim bladder at all. Uh, this does make sense because the physics of sound, when it's passing through water or a solid and it hits gas, it bounces back through. You know, the solid can carry it through the gas. And uh, so if you were banging, let's say you had a pipe that was sticking in, the, in the, uh, the bottom of the lake and it extended up top, you know, above the surface of the waves, you could crack that, that uh, pipe with a uh, wrench and you would hear that clanking down underwater and for a, a distance. Uh, ditto, if I start clanking that, uh, that pipe underwater, I would hear it, you know, coming up the pipe and, you know, passing through the air. 
from air to water and water to air, however, that sound bounces off. It doesn't pass through. So as that low frequency noise is traveling through the water, it hits the, the solid body of the fish, and when it encounters that fully gas-filled swim bladder, it bounces off or refracts, creates an echo. That echo masks the surroundings. Uh, the, the number one sense is hearing. And those inner ear structures that are detecting these uh, different sound patterns, you know, when, when they're identifying predators or prey or they're, they're hearing certain things in their surroundings, uh, coupled with pressure changes sensed by the lateral line, this allows the fish to orient, to navigate, to avoid predators, to find prey. And when that is basically replaced by the static of low-frequency noise, you know, the, the surroundings are now suddenly undiscernible and any wildlife all wildlife doesn't matter if it's fish if it's uh you know something that walks on four legs it flies with its wings or you know walks on the land with two legs like we do uh you know we, we are going to practice avoidance everything practices avoidance when you get into an area that is just uncomfortable or you're uncertain or you get disoriented you you want to get out of there you want to get away from it as fast as you can and that's something that uh you know, will displace those fish. It was seen in the Atlantic cod. It was seen in the Atlantic salmon, which has a partially gas-filled swim bladder. Uh, the impact radius is, is going to be different depending on those those swim bladders and, and obviously amplitude. Uh, but we know that the larger the turbine, the greater the noise. Uh, at a one and a half megawatt capacity turbine, uh, the Atlantic cod, which is very similar to our walleye or our smallmouth bass in that they have the same anatomy of that gas-filled swim bladder, uh, they were displaced from those operational turbines at a radius of three miles. Three miles. Now again, this lake isn't that small, it isn't that big. It's only 56 miles wide at its widest point, but where Governor Cuomo wants to stick these turbines in, it's only going to be a few miles from the Canadian line. And at that point in time, you know, from Sturgeon Point to Long Point is, uh, you know, in Canada is only 12 miles. So you put a four megawatt turbine out there, that might be a seven mile displacement. Uh, it could be linear, it could be a much higher number. However, that seems to suggest it's going to impact the Canadian fisheries. It's going to certainly impact our fisheries and our e economy. It's going to impact uh, potentially down into Pennsylvania. Uh, not a good thing. And then, of course, you've got the dredging of all that sludge out on the bottom. Now, the DEC, back in 2019, denied a permit for the Northeast uh, Gas Line Enhancement, the supply enhancement, uh, that was going to be a single pipeline that was going to run through Long Island Sound. They were going to have to do some dredging and trenching to install that pipeline, but it would get natural gas from where they're getting it on the eastern side of, uh, of uh, Pennsylvania through fracking and uh, going through New Jersey to get it up to uh, New York State and into the uh, New England area uh, where we need that natural gas. Natural gas is particulate free. It's very low emission. It's very uh, efficient. Uh, right now it's cheap because of hydraulic fracturing. It's cheaper than coal and it can spin up and it can be dialed down on demand very, very quickly. That's something that is certainly desired uh, within the electrical energy segment. But uh, the DEC, in their infinite wisdom, decided that, you know, dredging all that uh, stuff down in Long Island Sound, you know, especially near Oyster Bay, would impact the water quality, and uh, they, they just couldn't get their permit. He denied the permit. The, state, the DEC denied that permit to build that pipeline to get the gas to where it needs to be, uh, citing water quality and water that we don't drink, that we don't drink. We don't drink that water. We don't drink ocean water. We can't drink ocean water. That would kill us. The water that we do drink is in the fresh water. That's, that's in our wells and in the Great Lakes. We've got 21% of the world's surface fresh water found in the Great Lakes, and we have contaminants down on the bottom, and here comes the DEC touting this wonderful feasibility study back in February saying, hey, you know, we could possibly, you know, get some electrical energy from sticking wind turbines out in the Great Lakes, and never mind one trenched uh, exposure to uh, all the contaminants for a one single pipeline, let's put 50 turbines out there, which you've got 50 bases. You've got, additionally, you're going to have to build maintenance platforms, so it's not just the 50 turbines. Plus, you're going to have 50 transmission lines, actually 100. You've got one there and one back. It's a two-way thing. So you've got two transmission lines for every single uh, every single uh, uh, turbine out there. So you've got 50 turbines. You've got 100 transmission lines that are going to have to be dredged, go a couple miles, and into, hit a transmission or a, a junction point to be able to be brought to shore. All right. But the water quality doesn't matter in the Great Lakes because we only drink it. 
you know, I wonder what people are, are thinking. You know, this is the definitely the absolute epitome of, of uh, folly. And we've got wonderful fishing. We've got, uh, you know, the yellow perch that are on fire right now out there. Uh, this displacement's going to impact them too. You know, you look at it at a seven-mile area, it doesn't matter where they sight it. You know, they're going to miss the, the spawning grounds. Well, that sound is going to certainly... Uh, create a problem with spawning they're going to displace if they can't uh, figure out what's going on in that surrounding and it's not like these uh, lakes of the size of the ocean where you've got a lot of room and a lot of volume to have those repetitive places of uh, randomness that create that condition for the right spawning you know it's not just the right depth it's not just the right bottom type it's also the the physics it's also the way things are carried through there the oxygen and temperature mixation zooplankton and phytoplankton uh, you know these these areas have have to be nurseries. They've got to have the right conditions in water temperature and low turbidity to make sure those uh, those eggs are going to take and that the fry are successfully hatched. But they also have to have food. You know, if you don't have food, you know, the baby with the water, the, the baby bottle, if it's not going to be able to get a bottle, it's not going to live very long. Uh, same thing with the fish. You know, they need to have uh, good food. You're going to have to have good light penetration. They're going to have to have good oxygen mixation, you know, high oxygen levels. And those proper places, those those places that all come together with those physical characteristics don't exist everywhere in a lake that's only 227 miles long and, and 56 miles wide. You know, it's, it's just common sense. So, you know, when you disrupt those things and you say, hey, I'm even going to build these and I'm going to avoid those spawning areas, well, you're really not going to when you have this, uh, this have this infrasound that's going to, you know, generate and echo and reverberate throughout the lake. Um, causing displacement, causing fish to just abandon these areas because they don't know where they are. They can't detect their their, their surroundings. Um, add to that the physical displacement of these 50 stanchions and the uh, the uh, uh, maintenance platforms, and that's going to have a physical characteristic change in the lake. It's going to change the currents. You know, when you have a bridge that's put in uh, the Veterans Memorial Bridge on Chautauqua Lake that's uh, located just south of Bemis Point, uh, the Stowe Ferry, uh, that changed the entire dynamic of the southern basin of Chautauqua Lake. The physics, the characteristics of, of the currents, how things are carried. You know, the, the water um, is carried from north to south, from Mayville down to Jamestown, out the Shattuquin River, down to the to the, uh, uh, to the Conowango, which then heads up into the uh, Allegheny, which then heads down to Pennsylvania, meets up with the Monongahela, turns into the Ohio River. Uh, that flow was impacted and changed in Chautauqua Lake forever. Uh, it impacted spawning. It changed the fishery. Uh, the dynamics weren't well known at the start. Uh, not to say it was negative or positive, but it made different changes, and it changed the way uh, the ecosystem actually functions. So when you put those 50 turbines out there, those, those turbines are going to create uh, changes, and it's going to change the oxygen emission. It's going to change temperature dispersion. It's going to change the way phytoplankton and zooplankton is carried through the water column. It's going to change how those currents, which are flowing from west to east, but predominantly driven by wind, when they're crossing through those those uh, areas where the turbines are, you know, those those turbines are going to create uh, displacement and and it's going to create erosion of the sediment that's there so anything around it that could be toxic that maybe not was exposed is going to get exposed uh, what about electromagnetic uh, interference running along uh, the transmission lines what's that going to do to crustaceans we know that crustaceans have a big time problem lobsters crabs uh, shellfish etc mollusks uh, electromagnetics is not a friend of them uh, is that going to impact our crayfish and the food uh, chain you know, especially for the smallmouth bass we don't know. There's a lot of don't knows about this, yet we're going to move forward and we're going to, you know, pollute our lakes and destroy people uh, on a, basically on a what if. Uh, you know, any given day you see no wind out there, you know, the, the fishermen know uh, we should be listened to a lot closer, but we do have automatic standing, so if we need to take some legal action, we certainly can. A lot of great folly going on. We're going to keep you posted on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things that are happening in New York State, but at least the good news is right now they're not built. Even though there are interconnect requests for projects that haven't been even listed and uh, requests for proposals haven't even been solicited, uh, right now the lake is still the lake. Uh, there's a lot of people up and down uh, uh, the lakeshore uh, and beyond across multiple states and into Canada that are opposed to this. Uh, it's not about the view shed, it is about our fresh water and the life in the lake. And not to mention the life above the lake, too. You know, we've got all those birds and bald eagles, and we've got a thriving uh, bird watching 
uh, economy that's going on. And, and, you know, people like to see the Eagles. You know, I would hate to see a, a tour group go in or a, a birding competition, and now they're watching these Eagles cutting through these Cuisinarts known as wind turbines, and we see bird strikes and we see eagles die. That would be the worst thing in the world to see. But that's where we're heading. It's a collision course that is going to happen again. We want a permanent moratorium on any of this folly. We don't want to see this anymore. Uh, the kids not yet born deserve a brighter future than I certainly had and, and all, all us adults certainly had. So, you know, we'll keep you posted on that and, uh, you know, try to get as much as we can out to you guys as much as possible. back for the final segment of uh we love outdoors with rich davenport i just wanted to touch base real quick on a piece of legislation that's working its way through the new york state senate and assembly s5058 is a bill to ban the use of lead ammunition on all state lands wildlife management areas state forests state parks etc under the misguided notion that Wildlife is being poisoned by lead fragments that are left behind in meat that uh, hunters are shooting. And, you know, we must be leaving carcasses all over the place. Uh, bald eagles are dying, even though the uh, population has ridden, risen uh, exponentially. Uh, we don't seem to see a problem with it. Uh, but they, they were trying to uh, make a mountain out of a molehill a few years ago in the eagle management plan saying that oh my goodness there's like this big percentage of birds that are dying from lead poisoning even though that's coming from smelting and industrial smokestacks uh, wasn't coming from hunters and lead shot uh, but you know they, they did some creative death against death instead of death against total population it was a total nonsensical uh, study that was put out uh, it was debunked by yours truly relatively simply and uh, you know still they're trying to trying to trick you into thinking that you know the solid lead is a problem it comes from the ground it's going back to the ground lead is really dangerous when it's atomized or in colloidal form or dust form but solid lead is not going to be a poisoning thing unless you are killed by the concussion of it hitting you uh, there has never been a study that has shown that hunters have elevated blood levels because they eat the game that they harvest. That is just folly. There has never been anything like that. Uh, we do see that, you know, waterfowl uh, back in the 80s, uh, we did ban uh, lead shot, you know, for waterfowl hunters shooting over water. Uh, but there was a there was kind of a, a correlation between. Uh, the dabbler ducks and them taking pellets up, uh, you know, from bird shot in the shallows, getting them into their crop to help break down uh, the food that they're eating. Uh, remember, birds don't have teeth, so they got this little thing called a crop that, you know, gravel and such goes in there. That's why you see birds picking gravel on the side of the road. It's to put it in their crop. It helps break down uh, the seeds and other things that they eat, so it's easier to digest. They get that nutrition out of it. Uh, well, lead pellets could get into the crop, and as they grind up, that's where you get that, that wear and tear, and it creates that dust, and there was a, there was a little bit of a problem uh, that was seen with waterfowl dying of lead poisoning, but really, honestly, it was driven more by the leaded gasoline and runoff from, from the lead that was in the gas getting into the waterways and getting into, uh, uh, into the food, into the, into the, the, uh, uh, the, the aquatic plants, uh, getting into the, uh, the small fish, etc., the heavy metal poisoning, working its way up, as we know how that works within the food chain. Something small eats it. Something bigger eats that thing that's got a little bit, and it just builds up over time. Um, since heavy metals are in the muscle, they're not in your fatty tissue. It's not something that you can actually trim out before you start uh, doing the processing to eat. Uh, it's it kind of a problem, but the lead in the gasoline was really the biggest issue. It wasn't in lead shot. Uh, still, we put that out there, and now it's, we're starting to revisit this again. Even though there is no issue at all, there are no studies that say this is a problem to man, this is a problem to beast. Um, it's just you know, once again, junk masquerading as science because somebody wearing a white lab coat said it. Uh, Mayo Clinic has a whole lot of information on uh, lead poisoning and how this toxic metal actually 
uh, does get into your your metabolism, and this is not just people; it is you know all living creatures. And uh, you know, lead shot is not going to be a problem. You know, we've got veterans that have bullets and, and shrapnel fragments in their bodies for a long time. Doesn't do a darn thing to their lead levels unless it's in a joint where it's wearing away. Then you've got a different animal there. But it, it just doesn't show it. You can eat, swallow a big piece of lead, and uh, you know it passes through your digestive system. Most people have the same size digestive system. We've got you know a stomach, a small intestine, a large intestine, and uh, when it passes through, it passes through, ends up in the toilet, and your blood levels don't appreciably raise. Uh, that's not so much the case for dust for lead paint, which is colloidal, uh, these things, this is where you can actually, where the problem lies, uh, leaching through acidic uh, water, going through the pipes, uh, that's Flint, Michigan, when they went to the Flint River as their uh, water, because the Great Lakes were drying up, and they fell outside of the new restriction of the, uh, the radius uh, for withdrawal, uh, they decided to move to Flint River, and that was acidic water. They didn't balance the pH. It went through the old lead pipes. It leached the lead. It was now in the water, and over that course of those many miles and into the old buildings, well, that's the rest is history. We know how that worked. Uh, but lead, on uh, from, a, from a standpoint of hunters, this is just another anti-gun, anti-hunting uh, attack. Uh, yes, we have alternative ammo, and the hunters are embracing an alternative and using copper and such, but those are just as toxic too. Uh, you know, all metals in, in the wrong uh, amounts are going to be toxic to, to living things. Uh, that's just the way it is. But not every firearm, especially when you're talking about deer rifles, uh, not every caliber is available in alternate uh, ammunition, whether it be a copper uh, slug or a sabot or uh, tungsten or some other uh, substitute it's just not there for every single caliber so you know if you go out there with a with a, a, a strange caliber maybe you're using a 6.5 creedmoor instead of a 30-06 you may not find that uh, that bullet available in copper and now you can't take your firearm to the land that you paid for through state and federal funds uh, that is now held on in trust on behalf of the people now you can't go and use it um, with that firearm, you have to use something else. It's absolute folly. Uh, again, there's so much money that's involved in uh, the Robinson-Pittman Act of 1932. Ammunition is one of the things that carries a federal excise tax. It goes back into conservation, and it goes back into the states based on license sales, the number of licenses, and there's a formula of acreage and coastline. I think it works out to about $15, $16 a license sold in New York State. So we would be basically telling the people that are funding all our conservation efforts that you can no longer use it for no reason. There is no reason at all. Uh, so, you know, I'm urging everybody right now uh, to get with your state senator, tell them to vote no on 5058, S5058. Uh, it's just a, it's on the floor right now, calendar. It's, it's trying to be on the calendar for a floor vote. It's, it has been advanced out of committee. So, you know, we need to reach out uh, and make sure that these folks know that, uh, you know, wildlife conservation, we don't do anything that's going to harm our our uh, overall population. We're doing things that are based in sound science, sound conservation principles that is sustainable and is, is uh, good for the wildlife. If it wasn't for sport regulated sport hunting, we wouldn't have wildlife in New York State today. Uh, so, you know, just get on that, make sure that these attacks that continually happen uh, don't happen. It's, it is interesting that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, rejected a lead ban that happened in Arizona. On federal lands, they didn't want anybody to, to use lead, and the Supreme Court said, you're out of your mind, this is totally unconstitutional. So hopefully we can uh, see something like that. It's just a shame that we have to always take these laws that come from these uh, socialists uh, to court and, and, and fight this stuff with, they should be upholding their oath of office and not crafting any unconstitutional laws to begin with. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, just wanted to say uh, thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, when we come back uh, next week, we're going to be examining some of the other, uh, you know, pike and walleye are going to be opening up. We'll give you some of that. And, uh, you know, be safe. Don't worry about a thing. <laughs>